Tell, did you miss me? Because I sure missed y'all a great, great deal. It is June the 7th, year of our Lord 2022, continues to just roll right along, and we've missed you. So, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, gonna do a couple different things today. One is we missed the D Day anniversary yesterday because there was no program. Uh, so, we're gonna do that in a very special way, cover one of the great speeches in presidential history. We'll cover that in a little bit. Great guest today, our buddy Michael Siegel, Dr. Michael Siegel, is joining us. We're going to talk about guns. We're going to talk about gun data. It's getting thrown around all over the place as people continue to debate uh, guns, gun control, the Second Amendment, mass shootings. What's good data? What's not good data? What's a lot of noise? What's good factual basis to try to make decisions out of? He's dug through it. He's got a great piece out at ordinary-times.com about it we're going to dig into it. we're going to turn down the noise on gun violence data and get to the facts with our buddy dr michael siegel also we're going to cover a story out of the buffalo shooting i know yavaldi and some other things have kind of overshadowed that time moves along we shouldn't forget those folks up there yet another case things falling through the cracks in this particular case a 911 dispatcher has been fired for the way they handled uh their part in that awful massacre up in buffalo we'll cover that as well we'll end the program uh, a somewhat melancholy note, but one of hopeful, uh, a father raising awareness about suicide after he lost his own son to that horrible uh, tragedy that suicide is to so many, many families. But first, uh, we got to talk about me, which I don't usually like to talk about all that much, but we kind of got to. Uh, you may have noticed we haven't had a herd tell in a little bit since uh, basically the middle of last week. Some of you may know, some of you may not know. Uh, me being a writer and me doing media and radio and this program here, this is uh, about my third or fourth career choice. Uh, I was active duty military for 12 years. Uh, while I was in the military, I uh, developed um, some health problems uh, that led to me no longer being in the military. One of those required a pretty extensive surgery that did not go well. In fact, we found out years later that that surgery had actually been done very poorly. We can just be blunt and say it got botched. Uh, the surgeon screwed up. We didn't know this until years later. So after the military, I was working on my civilian career, uh, puddling my way through middle management <laughs> and enjoying it. I loved my job uh, and I got really sick. Uh, so in 2015, I got really, really sick, got into doing some treatment stuff. 2016, I went to Duke to have some surgery. It was during that surgery in 2016 that they found out uh, just how badly the surgery in 2010 uh, out in Vegas that the Air Force did for me had been botched and screwed up. Uh, I was supposed to have about two hours of surgery and maybe spend the night if it didn't go well. Ended up having seven and a half hours of surgery being put in the hospital. Uh, two days later, I had to have another five and a half hours of surgery uh, because there was so much damage. Um, I also had uh, some extensive complications. Uh, so instead of having an outpatient surgery in 2016, I ended up spending uh, four, almost five months in the hospital inpatient, almost all of that at Duke. Uh, I had to have multiple surgeries. 
uh, in the middle of all that, I had to have a uh, heart surgery because of the trauma from everything else that was going on. I had to had what was called a pericardial infusion, had to have a cardiac top and nod put in. That's a heart surgery procedure to drain. Um, just a lot of fun stuff. Wound up on a ventilator for a while. I've wrote about this before, but I need to tell you all this to get to why we missed uh, shows last week. Uh, eventually, I had a kind of an old school surgery for GI called a pyloroplasty, which if they would have done that in 2010, we could have skipped a lot of this, but that's neither here nor there. Got that done. And thus, um, that was the end of my working career uh, because of things like the 70 pound weight loss, had to learn how to walk again uh, because I had a TBI prior when I was on the ventilator. It brought back the right side weakness that I had prior, had to rehab that all over again. Anyway, long story short, uh, I was left, uh, pretty disabled. Uh, so that was the end of me working a quote unquote real job. So that's when I took up writing and I got my Twitter account and I started expanding my world back out. I've wrote about this before. If you want to read it, you can. So, um, things have been pretty good since then. I've had a pretty good run of good health. Uh, we've known though, that at some point the GI issues that I have that are very severe, were going to rear their head again. Uh, that's why I get scoped about every six months to a year, depending on how bad it looks in there. Um, I was due for one anyway, but I, uh, the GI doctor that I'd saw had just left. They were waiting on the new one. The appointment got canceled anyway, last Wednesday evening, um, not to get graphic about it, but I threw up, I was throwing up blood, which is a bad sign for somebody with GI issues. So I went to the ER, my family took me to the ER uh, they found uh, occult blood elsewhere, which means I had an esophageal bleed. They admitted me to the hospital, kept me a couple days. They did an emergency scope and found um, found out what was going on in there. Uh, so to put a long story short on this, uh, it was basically the Chernobyl gif that everybody shares around. Not great, not terrible. Uh, the worst case scenario isn't there. There's uh, There wasn't any spots or anything like that that we always fear being in there. But uh, conditions have worsened in there. It's uh, not great. So we're going to do some medicine and some treatments and some other things for about eight weeks. And then we're going to check it again and go from there. The reason I'm telling you all this is uh, one is a lot of people just blew up my inbox and just I appreciated all the outreach. It, it was very touching. Thank you so very much for that. Um, but the other reason is this is probably not going to be the last amount of time on the show that I'm going to miss. Uh, there's going to be days where I just can't do it for a couple of reasons. One is there's probably going to be more procedures, which means anesthesia, which means, you know, those will be days I may not be able to do anything. The other thing is I had to change the type of medicines I take. Um, sometimes some of those medicines, uh, just to be blunt, uh, I'm not in my right mind. Uh, they make you get brain fog. Uh, some of them make me very, very drowsy. Uh, some of them just, you, I just can't function correctly and I can't give you the quality I need to give you, uh, if I'm taking that kind of medication. So we're trying to find a balance where I can still function, but obviously we're to a place where sometimes I just have to medicate and I don't have a choice. So I'm telling you all that for a couple of reasons. One is just, I appreciate your support. I, I don't want your, don't need any pity or anything like that. We still got it pretty good compared to a lot of folks, but I want you to know if we miss time or miss shows or whatever, what's going on, that's what's going on. Uh, my plan is to continue to work as much as I possibly can. I enjoy it. I love doing this. Um, it's very fulfilling to get to do this. It's a privilege to get to do this. Uh, and we're going to do it as long as we possibly can. But we also have to be uh, realistic. There's going to be days that I just physically cannot do this. So if I miss a show, 
or miss a couple shows, or we have to do some fillers or do reruns or do a special or whatever. That's what's going on. I physically can't do it. It's not because I don't miss you or don't want to do it. I just can't that day or a couple days, or I may be in the hospital getting something done or whatever's going on. We'll do our best to keep you updated, especially on the social media, uh, my Twitter account, Four for the Fire, uh, the at her tell show Twitter account. We'll keep you updated if anything major goes on. Um, we'll put in place uh, for folks to get information to you should anything happen with me, but I'm okay. It's just part of the process of life. You just work the problem. Uh, there's no reason to panic, but we wanted to update you because you give us the most precious thing you have, your time. We don't ever want to waste it and we want to respect it. So I think you have a right to know these things. So I appreciate your prayers and support. Thank you for your concern and let's get back to work. Some more Herd Tell right after this. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Hertel. Uh, since we didn't have a program yesterday, uh, it was the anniversary of D-Day, the Normandy landings in World War II. We didn't get a chance to mark that yesterday since we didn't have a program. We're going to do that today, uh, and we're going to do that by playing FDR's D-Day prayer. It's always known as the Mighty Endeavor speech, but it has a lot of application to the world we still live in today. Uh, the phrase at the end, unworthy uh, schemers, I've been using that a lot in my writing lately to apply to many things. I think it's a powerful piece of American rhetoric. It's one of the great speeches a president has ever given, and I want to highlight it here. So if you've never heard it in its entirety, this is a recording from the FDR library of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's announcement of the D-Day invasion in the form of a prayer. You can imagine if the president of the United States nowadays would lead the nation in prayer over the radio or TV or Internet, the reaction might be. Nevertheless, that's what he did. And there's a lot of good stuff in this rhetoric. Please listen to this. And remember those that were so brave that we owe so very much to. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, 
and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and cruel. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day without rest until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas, whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them, help us, Almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in Thee in this hour of great sacrifice. Many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer. But because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in a continuance of prayer as we rise to each new day and again when each day is spent let words of prayer be on our lips invoking thy help to our efforts give us strength too strengthen our daily tasks to redouble the contributions we make in the physical and the material support of our armed forces. And let our hearts be stout to wait out the long travel, to bear sorrows that may come, to impart our courage unto our sons, wheresoever they may be. And, O oh Lord, give us faith
Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dulled. Let not the impacts of temporary events, of temporal matters of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. We'll continue with more Herd Tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. The Street continues. The most seen, most appearances, most knowledge, probably, because he's one of the smartest people on the planet. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel's back with us. How are you, sir? Glad to have you back. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. That's a mighty fine rocket you got behind you there, sir. Yeah, it's an artist's conception of the Artemis uh, rocket, assuming uh, we, we get there with the SLS and all that. NASA might have a world record on concepts that never actually come to fruition. Would that be a safe estimate to maybe say? I think they have a, a record on administrations and Congresses coming in and changing their priorities and moving things around and just not sticking to anything for a long period of time. But uh, but they have a lot of projects, yes. But we just saw you know, the one of the biggest and most expensive ones go up, and it's working extremely well, the Webb telescopes. So uh, kind of cut them a little slack on some things. Yeah. NASA is one of those things like when they get it right, they really get it right, like spectacularly right. And when it's wrong, it's really spectacularly wrong. Well, so, space yeah. is expensive. So if it, if it works, it's great. If it doesn't, it's a, a huge cost. So, yeah, it is. However, uh, today you turned your scientific prowess towards a different topic. Um, you, like everybody else, has been talking about uh, gun violence. Um you had a piece in ordinary-times.com where I felt a little bit of frustration from you about the, the gun debate. You did what you do as a scientist. You decided to just go and look at the data. What got you to go on and looking at the data besides just the fact that everybody was yelling at each other over it? Well, it was, it was partly an outgrowth of where I've been thinking about these mass shootings in general. You know, the analogy I made in another article was to plane crashes. Plane crashes are extremely rare, 
But when one happens, we investigate every step of what happened to try to figure out whether it's preventable, what went wrong, what we can do differently. You know, for example, one of the most famous ones was a flight out of Chicago where the engine fell off the plane and it flipped over and crashed and everyone was killed. And, you know, don't have engines fall off a plane is a pretty obvious answer. But the NTSB went through every step of the way. All right, was there a problem in the way the plane was designed? Was there a problem in the way the plane was maintained? And was there a problem with the way the plane was flown? Was there a problem with the way the pilots reacted? To try to go through every step. Because what people in, in the airline industry talk about with plane crashes is the cascade. Planes have so much redundancy and pilots are so well trained that you have to have a lot of things go wrong in a row for, one to, for a plane to crash. And so what they do is they look through everything that went wrong. Like there's six things that went wrong. What are we going to do about those six? With the plane in Chicago, there, were a, there was a maintenance issue with how they were maintaining the engines. They figured out, hey, we need to start inspecting these planes to look for cracks that may indicate another thing is going to happen. In this case, there was just a, a piece of bad luck that a hydraulic line was severed when the engine came off the plane. And also some training. The pilots didn't realize right away what had happened. And so they might have been able to still land if, they, if they'd had a, a better training for a once-in-a-lifetime event. And I thought about that in terms of when we see one of these mass shootings, it seems to me we're looking at single point failure. We're looking at, you know, last, a couple of weeks ago, we heard a teacher left the door open. That turned out not to be true. But if a teacher leaving a door open is the difference between 19 kids dead and no kids dead, we have a serious problem. You, you have to look at these things as cascades. Did this person show mental health problems? Did they tell people what they were going to do and the warnings were ignored? Could a red flag law have denied them a weapon? You know, could better security have prevented this? Could it have minimized it? You know, we're focusing with Uvalde a lot on the police response, and we should because it's looking like it was they really messed up. But we can't ignore all the steps that went up to that point. And so, you know, I think we need to you know, the NIJ has a study out starting to look at these things systematically and seeing what they have in common. And like one of the things they found is that half of mass shootings, the mass shooter leaked his plans. He told someone what he was going to do. He put something on social media saying what he was going to do. And maybe if we pay more attention to that, we can prevent one. And, you know, you want to be careful with that. You don't want to do what they did in one city where they arrested a 10 year old and perp walked him because he made a stupid threat. You want to approach these more uh, organically. But we need to start looking at every step of the way, you know, mental, you know, people say, oh, it's mental health. Oh, it's gun control. Well, look at all of them so that you build layer after layer of security that stands between someone who's disturbed and a bunch of dead people. And, you know, unfortunately, these debates have a tendency to devolve into gun control because people, you know, a lot of people say we need to get control of the guns. And the other side sort of responds with anything but guns. And I think those are a part of it. I mean, I have my biases. I'm, I'm very pro-Second Amendment, but I think that has to be part of the discussion. Since the discussion tends to revolve around guns, when I looked at that, I found that a lot of people are making claims that the data don't really support, or even if they do support, they're kind of out of context and need a little bit more of a broad view to, to get to uh, the actual point. And one of the problems with an issue like gun control, when you look at the data, you can always find a study that will tell you what you want to hear because there are thousands of studies out there and you'll always find at least one study that says this will work or this will not, or this, this is a waste of time. What you have to do is you have to sort of look at the entirety of the data and try to pull the signal out of the noise. 
Now, there's been two groups that have done that. The National Resource Council in 2004 did a meta study of gun control, and their conclusion was we need more study. There wasn't anything really clear that jumped out from the data. And a few years ago, the RAND Corporation did another meta study, and they did find some things work. Um, they found, for example, that uh, background checks are really good for reducing uh, gun violence. They found that denying weapons to domestic abusers seems to be useful. They found that child safety provisions are very useful in cutting down uh, gun deaths. Uh, other policies are not supported by the data. And that doesn't mean they don't work. That just means we don't have the data to claim they work. And so to me, that was, I, I've been pushing the RAND study a lot because this to me is the first time we've ever looked at this systematically and said, okay, what works, what doesn't, and where can we go with that? Yeah, and before we get into the individual claims that you wrote about in ordinary-times.com, isn't a lot of this, because I've been thinking about it too, isn't this kind of an eternal problem when you really strip this down to, okay, what's what's the core problem here? Isn't this the the real core problem that we have in a representative of we're going to have, we're trying to legislate an outlier that applies to the majority of folks. And anytime you're trying to legislate or write policy for outliers, you're always going to have a big mess on your hand because they're just that they're outliers, but you've got to make some kind of rule for everybody that can be applied to a lot of other areas, but it's really true. Like you said, plane crashes, you know, we have rules for plane crashes. We have rules for mass shootings. Isn't that kind of the core problem that makes this really hard to deal with when you start talking about systematically? Yes. I think when you, when you think in terms of, uh, of, policy, whether it's gun control, mental health, school security, when you think of that in terms of mass shootings, these things are incredibly rare. They're about 1% of gun violence. Now, I, I get into this in the piece that there, that depends on how you define a mass shooting, et cetera, et cetera. But when we're talking about what most of us think of a mass shooting as someone just getting a gun and blowing away a bunch of strangers, those are incredibly rare. The vast majority of gun violence is the day-to-day -day murders on the streets. And in fact, the most the biggest part of gun violence, uh, if you want to call it that, is suicide. More people die from guns from suicide than die from hot, um, from killing other people. And, you know, that's certainly uh, something that can be addressed with mental health. I mean, you talk a lot about veterans issues. Veterans have a much higher rate of suicide than the general populace. And so that's been talked about a lot. Uh, you know, can, is there something we can do to prove, you know, care for PTSD and so forth? But one of the things I like about the RAND study is it doesn't just look at mass shootings. It looks at all of these things. So let's say you enhance background checks. That might not prevent every mass shooting. It might only prevent a couple. But if that would prevent more homicides and suicides in general, then I think you, you can talk about that policy being justified. Yeah. Talking to our friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, let's get into some of these claims. Uh, here's one I've heard a lot. Uh, I was actually on British uh, radio and media uh, the day the shooting happened in Uvalde. Uh, and this one got thrown at me. Uh, the claim is other countries don't have this level of violence. What does the data actually say? I know we get that that 12.12 12 to the population number thrown around a lot, but what does the actual data say? The data says that that's, that that's true. Um, we have a lot more gun violence than other countries. You know, we're more comparable to countries that we would think of as being less developed than us. You know, we have a, several times the amount of gun violence that other countries do. Canada, for example, has 2.0 homicides uh, per 100,000. We have six. 
you know, I mean, even countries like Iran and so forth have lower homicide rates than we do. And so we definitely do have a, a violence problem in this country. I mean, you can compare to other countries like Mexico or something like that, where they have way higher rates. But in terms of developed countries, we're way towards the bottom uh, in terms of uh, the amount of uh, bloodshed that's going on. Yeah, we're talking to Dr. Michael Siegel. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to go through some of these other claims uh, piece by piece. He's got a great piece out at ordinary-times.com. We'll be right back with our scientist friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, right after this. We're again with our friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, uh, talking a little science today because he's turned his scientific prowess towards the gun debate, what the data actually says down below all the noise and the hollering. Uh, Here's a claim I hear a lot. Um, I feel it's probably uh, it's one of those that sounds one way, but then looks another when you look at it on a graph. Uh, The disparity is because the U.S. has so many guns. There's so much gun violence because the U.S. has so many guns. What does the data actually say about that claim, though? Well, on its face, that, that claim is, is true. If you look at other countries with gun ownership and violence, we, you know, they sort of form a cloud of data points at one end of the scale, and then we're way off in both. We have way more guns and way more violence. But whether you can assume those things are true, that one causes the other, is a little bit trickier. Because if you look at other countries, there's no correlation between the amount of gun ownership and the amount of homicide going on. And certainly not between the amount of gun ownership and the amount of suicide. I mean, South Korea, for example, has a way higher suicide rate than us and a very, very low gun ownership rate. And that's because of cultural issues that they have that high suicide rate. So you have to sort of take those out. But if you look at other countries, just leave the United States out and you look at whether there is a connection between gun violence and gun ownership, it really doesn't hold up that well. And so what you do is you say, well, other countries have low levels of guns, low levels of violence. The U.S. is up here. Therefore, that's a connection. If you have one data point that's defining your relation, that's not really a relation. And I'm not saying that there's not a connection. There might, there, there, there probably is. But that's not, you can't just say that without putting it into the context that we are an outlier in every sense of the word. We have way more guns than other countries. We have way more violence than other countries. We're sort of a, a data set of one compared to the rest of the world. And just some basic, if you're teaching a basic science class, a data set of one is always going to kind of be iffy when you're trying to make some kind of a conclusion, right? Yeah. If you have one cloud of data points and one outlier, you can't really draw a conclusion from that. And so, you know, you Again, I'm not saying there's not a connection. I'm saying that when you compare us to other countries, that's a tricky conclusion to draw because the United States is its own thing. It's very different from other countries. All right. And here's with a- other countries, that gun ownership rate and the amount of murders going on is really not connected. All right. So here's another claim. We hear this one a lot. Uh, uh, the violent places in the U.S. all have strict gun control laws. 
Now, on the face of it, I know this one because we hear it all the time. Uh, usually it's they point at Chicago or somewhere like that. We understand they're meaning uh, urban areas, but let's just take that claim on its face. The violent places in the U.S. all have strict gun control laws. What's the data say? The data says that's true, but it's also tricky to interpret what that actually means. That, for example, in Chicago, half the guns that are in Chicago are, when they're traced, come from outside of the state entirely. So, yes, most violent violence is concentrated in cities, although we get a lot of in rural areas too. But, you know, guns are small. Guns are portable. They cross state lines. They cross city lines. Many of the guns that are used for crimes are illegally owned anyway. So you can't necessarily draw a conclusion between those things. And if you look at things on a state level, you'll find that the states with the highest murder rate are red states. They're places like Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee. You know, Illinois is barely in the top 10 in terms of murder rate. New York and California are much, much lower. And so you can't really say that places with more gun control have more violence because when you look the when you look at things, it's not that clear at all that you have those things. Cities have a lot of violence. They also have a lot of uh, trafficking of guns, of illegal guns and so forth. So you could argue that maybe the gun control laws in those cities aren't effective at knocking down the violence. I certainly think that's a, a reasonable conclusion to draw, but you can't necessarily say that that you know, necessarily means that, that, uh, that the two are connected. All right. Here's one that I've heard a lot in the media lately. Uh, mass shootings are happening more often. Now, I, I know I know one data point that makes that one a little iffy right off the top, but I'll let you tell the story. Uh, it reminds me of the old Clinton, you know, well, it depends on the definition of is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mass shootings are happening more often. Where do you find that claim when you go to look at the data? Uh, that claim seems to be true, but it depends a little bit on how you define mass shootings. Um the, a lot of the gun control advocates define it as, for example, the Gun Violence Archive defines it as where at least four people are shot. So if you have a drive-by shooting or some gang violence, that counts as a mass shooting. That's not what most people think about when they talk about mass shootings. Now, Mother Jones has been compiling a database for about 10 years where they define a mass shooting as having four more people dead that is not connected to the drug trade or robbery. So that's more of what we think of where someone gets an AR-15, goes into a building and just starts randomly shooting. That shows that it has been slowly increasing for the 21st century, but in the last five years, it's just spiked dramatically. We are getting way more of these incidents uh, where people just get a gun and blow away a bunch of people. And it's not clear why that's happening. Uh, That's kind of the scary thing. Now, there was an article written, I think, uh, in The Atlantic about five years ago that talked about mass shootings as a kind of social contagion, that when mass shootings happen, people see they happen, that gives them the idea to do it. And there are online communities where people talk about these things and express admiration, for example, the Columbine shooters and talk about, oh, I'm gonna have the best methods, I'm gonna have the maximum body count. And it's hard to know what to make of that. It's the internet, people talk smack on the internet, that's what happens. But uh, this was pointed out five years ago that this was a social contagion and that things might get a lot worse. And I think when you when that, when you make a prediction, things are going to get worse because this is a social contagion and things get worse. I think that's a good sign that there may be something to do that. Continuing with our friend, Dr. Michael Siegel. Okay, here's one. Uh, mass shootings this is a claim. Mass shootings dramatically increased since the assault weapons ban expired. Now, the assault weapons ban 
That was a Clinton era initiative, 1994 to 2004. That was in effect. It was uh, the brainchild of one Senator Joe Biden at the time, now President Joe Biden. Uh, he loves to tout this one because that was one of his signature accomplishments in the Senate. But is it true? Claim mass shootings dramatically increased since the assault weapons ban expired. What does the data say? I would say that's not really well supported by the data. Um, we had plenty of mass shootings when the assault weapons ban was in place. Uh, Columbine was a mass shooting, and that happened while the assault weapons ban was in place. Uh, after the assault weapons ban expired, you did see this slow increase, but it was a very gentle increase. It's really in the last five years where things have spiked. Now, maybe you could say that's because the assault weapons ban expired. I don't think so, since it, it started about 14, 15 years after that. Most there, there are a few papers that make this claim that violence went up dramatically after the assault weapons ban. But the bulk of research and what's summarized in the RAND study is that the assault weapons ban had a low or minimal effect on violence. And mainly because most of the gun deaths, most of the gun violence in our society involve handguns or rifles. And handguns especially are just dominate. So assault rifles, even at the peak of the ban, were only a few percent and even now are still only a few percent of gun violence. All right, here's another good one, just because of the way it's phrased. Uh, claim, all the studies show gun control works. All the studies never show anything. You know, you can find studies that will say that smoking does not cause lung cancer, even though it's one of the most robust scientific results out there. Sometimes you get bad data. Sometimes, especially when you're talking about 50 states in this country with various gun laws, and especially because Gun violence isn't monocausal. It's not just that guns drive it. There are other things that drive this, the, the amount of gun violence going on. And so it's very, very difficult to pick out what policy, what change is causing what thing to happen. And so I think that the, again, referring back to the RAND study, that's the most comprehensive one. That's the meta study. That's the one that tries to filter the studies, figure out which ones are garbage, throw those away, figure out how to weight them and so forth. And they do show some policies work. As I said, background checks, very well supported by the data. Uh, other things, very well supported by the data. But they don't show that it has a huge dramatic impact. You know, we have these sort of camps where some people want to say gun control doesn't work. And some people want to say, if we had gun control like Europe, we'd have European violence rates. I don't think either of those hypotheses is supported by the data. There is evidence that some gun control works, background checks in, in particular, uh, child safety laws, those things uh, do, do seem to be supported by the evidence. But even then, that doesn't show that if we pass those kind of laws, we would get down to European style uh, gun violence. Now, there's a couple more in this uh, that you wrote about these different claims. I'm going to skip down to the last one because it's one we hear a lot because, you know, we have time limits here. Uh, Australia banned many guns and their homicide rate went down. That's the claim. How, what does the data say? This is true, but you have to look a little bit at a, at a different picture. After Australia banned, had their big gun buy, ban and buyback of guns, their homicide rate dropped 40% over the next uh, 10 years or so. But that happened everywhere. The United States saw a 60% drop in homicides. The UK saw about a 50% drop. France saw a huge drop. Every developed country from the mid to 90s to the early 2000s saw a huge drop in murder and gun violence and crime overall. No one really knows why that happened. There are a lot of theories about there. One I'm kind of partial to is the lead theory that lead in our environment, in the 1970s, 80s, we started getting rid of lead 
and lead does damage the brain, uh, hurt impulse control. And so one of the hypotheses is that as the amount of lead dropped, the people's ability to think through the consequences of their actions, you know, violent tendencies were diminished and that was happening worldwide. I'm not completely sold on that hypothesis, but it is one that a lot of people uh, put credence to. But yes, Australia saw a drop in crime. Everywhere in the developed world saw that same drop in crime. Australia was not an outlier. They, weren't, they didn't see a way more drop in crime than the United States did. In fact, they saw a little bit less than we did. So your correlation is not causation. Just because you do something does not mean what follows is connected to it. Sometimes it is. It's a good way to place to start. But when you put Australia's crime stats in context with other countries, it really doesn't show a dramatic impact. So to kind of wrap all this up with our friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, um, one thing we do know all of this data says, although it's desperate data, it does all say that there's not going to be one single piece of gun legislation that fixes all of our problems with this mass shooting. Is that accurate to say with the data that you're seeing? I would say that that would be very accurate. Um, I, I would say that there seems to be evidence supporting in improving the background check system. Um, there seems to be data supporting red flag laws, uh, although those are very early, so it's hard to tell. There seems to be data supporting uh, child safety provisions. But, you know, again, think of it as the air airplane crash model. We're trying to put layer after layer after layer that goes between uh, uh, someone and committing a murder or committing a suicide for that matter. And so we can't think of this as a one size fits all. We can't think of this as this one policy is going to solve this problem or this even this group of policies is going to solve this problem. We have to think of this as step after step. It is mental health. It is you know possibly gun control. It is better security. It is looking for warning signs. It is better monitoring of social media. All of those things com combined will, will help. You know, the analogy I used in the piece was that you know, a single thread of twine won't hold up uh, a basketball, but if you wind enough together, you can hold up a piano. One policy is not going to drop our huge rate of homicide and suicide, but a whole bunch of policies in different areas that work together, that put layer after layer between someone and a death, I think those, uh, those can help. Yeah. And it goes back to what you said. Anytime you have um, systemic cascading failure, there was a whole lot of accountability that wasn't done ahead of time, which is a big part of this. We're seeing this with the police in Uvalde, but like even the Buffalo shooter, you know, they're the background check system as it is. A lot of the times these guys go through, even with the background checks. So a lot of this, I think they need to just work on what they've got to start with, which would be easy enough to do. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, always appreciate your time, sir. Let folks know where they can find you. This piece is up at ordinary-times.com. We'll make sure to link to it. And uh, let folks know where they can find you on your social media and follow you for all your great space hot takes and your YouTube channel, which is a ton of fun. Um, I'm at ordinarytimes.com. I'm also at, uh, if you go to uh, how underscore RTFLC on Twitter, you'll find my Twitter feed where I have links to my videos and Ordinary Times pieces and all that. And uh, that's where you go. Great stuff, my friend. Always appreciate you. Um, good job on this data stuff. Always appreciate you breaking down. It's so good that even I can understand it. You do good work, sir. Appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Anytime, sir. Thank you.
Welcome back to Hertel. Uh, this is infuriating. Let's go back to Buffalo. Of course, the tragic shooting at the top supermarket there. Uh, this is from the Huffington Post. Uh, a 9-11 dispatcher has been fired after allegedly hanging up on a store employee who called for help during last month's mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. Ten people were killed and three others injured in what authorities described as a racially motivated hate crime at Topps Friendly Supermarket on May 14th. The 18-year-old shooter was arrested and targeted the supermarket, which serves a predominantly black community. As the terror unfolded, an assistant manager at the store dialed 911 to ask for help. Instead, the shooter survivor said she was yelled at by the dispatcher before being hung up on. Quote, she said she was yelling at me, saying, why are you whispering? You don't have to whisper, top supermarket assistant manager Leticia Rogers told the Buffalo News. And I was telling her, ma'am, he's still in the store. He's shooting. I'm scared for my life. I don't want him to hear me. Can you please send help? She got mad, hung up in my face. Erie County, which oversees the 9-11 call center, previously told HuffPost last month that the call has been investigator and that the dispatcher was placed on leave. But on Friday, NBC News reported that the dispatcher, who has not been identified but worked as a dispatcher for eight years, has been fired. The individual, who was subject to a disciplinary hearing yesterday, is no longer with employed as a police complaint writer for Erie County spokesman Peter Anderson told NBC News. On top of this, we also have more reporting now that this individual was well known to be a problematic, not only the previous threats when he was in high school to do some kind of an event with his high school. He had been held by authorities for almost a day and a half who released him thinking there was no further action they could take with the Buffalo shooting in which we'll find out probably in the Evaldi shooting and a lot of these shootings. There was a whole lot of slipping through the cracks, people that knew, people that were aware and things that didn't get done. While we try to figure out what we can do about these mass shootings, there's a lot we can do about the processes that keep seem to keep happening over and over on these. Slipping through the cracks, not identified, not told, people not doing their jobs when they brought information like this 9-11 dispatcher, like the police in Uvalde, like special help. There's all kinds of little pieces to these things. We go back through them. Everybody's got to do their job and everybody needs to be accountable. That's where you start with a big problem. We can't solve it with one or two things but you might be able to prevent it with a couple hundred little things. More Heard Tell right after this. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, we try to end on an uplifting note. This one starts out sad, but gets better. Uh, going overseas, the BBC. A father who lost his 17-year-old son to suicide has raised more than 8,000 pounds for charity. Pete Kenny from Leicester lost his son, Jamie, in 2019, weeks before his 18th birthday. Mr. Kenny has now completed the Cape Wrath Trail, a 230-mile hike in Scotland to raise funds for Papyrus, a suicide prevention charity. 
He said, if we can help just one family going through the loss of a child this way, it will be worth it. Mr. Kenny said Jamie's death had come completely out of the blue. I can't tell you how devastating this is, not just for us, but for our families, friends, neighbors, and his friends as well. He was bright, kind, and thoughtful, our beautiful, shining, perfect boy. He said him and his partner, Dinah, Jamie's mom, were committed to helping to prevent other young suicides. Mr. Kenny began his epic trek in northern Scotland on 6 May. We went into the Highlands a lot as a family, and Jamie loved the outdoors. It seemed a good way to honor his memory and raise money as well. He said he also plans to raise funds by running in the London Marathon in October. It'll be my third marathon, certainly my last, and honored to run in such a big event with Jamie's memory and help others. We will always carry the weight of Jamie's loss. That deep sadness won't leave us, we know, but we can honor his memory and help others along the way. That will feel as if we're making a difference. Ged Flynn, chief executive of Pappers, said we would like to say a big thank you to Pete and all those who support his fundraising, which will help us continue to give hope to young people who are struggling with life. Uh, we'll link to that in the show notes like we always do. Make sure you're checking on each other. You never, ever know how someone's doing, and it only takes them a few moments and a one stray thought to do something permanently damaging to them and their family. Make sure you're checking on each other, taking care of ourselves and our families and loved ones. That'll do it for Hertel today. Thank you so much for joining us. We've missed you. Glad to be back with you. As long as we're able to do these, we will continue to do them. Sure is good to be back with you. So until we talk to you again, wherever you are, across the street, around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you again soon on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.